Uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 3 through 10 this morning. Um, I'll do a little recap real quick. In, in chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy as we've been there, um, Paul's introducing these three different groups of people to the, to the local church. He's talked about widows, he's talked about elders, and he's talked about those under a yoke. And the call for the church is to get unified around these three groups of people. So when the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, he says, let the widows. We discussed this a few weeks ago. He says, let the widows. What he's actually calling the body of Christ to do is honor the widows. And he's saying, um, body, like church, let the widows receive honor. You guys should honor them. And so this was the call to the church to get unified uh, around taking care of some of the practical needs of the people in the church that they would encounter. Uh, in this case, again, it was the widows. Um, the whole point of this text in 5 and 6 is, is that um, the, the, the church, in order for the church to have this redemptive kind of uh, presence in a city, it's only going to come out of a place of unity. Like Paul's continuing to seek unity for the church. And so it's, it's paramount that the church is unified in order for this to happen. And so instead of the burden of, of being able to practically take care of the widows, just falling on a couple of people within the church, the call is to the body of Christ to actually give generously to support the widows. The second part of the call is then he goes into let the elders is the statement that he made. Let the widows, then he says let the elders. And the call of the church is to be um, unified with the leadership of the church. Like he says, let the elders. And because if there's unity within the leadership of the church, the spiritual tone of the church is going to be healthy. And it'll provide a safe environment for some to come and to discover what Jesus has for them and experience Jesus in an amazing way. But I love that the text that we looked at a few weeks ago, um, I love what it says because it addresses some of these legitimate concerns that the people have. That it's not just sitting there and telling people, uh, everybody to get along. It's these like practical ways for us to be unified with the leadership in the church so that the church can be healthy. And then a couple weeks ago, as Dan taught, we looked at another statement um, when he talks about those that he refers to as under a yoke, to let those under a yoke. And, and we looked at the, the, this call for those under a yoke, again, to let those under a yoke. We looked at the call for the church to engage in mission of sorts. That, that, that's, in fact, one of the priorities of the church is that we would seek to go and make Jesus known as the Great Commission says, right? To go and make disciples. And so that, that burden doesn't fall on those that are just preaching on a Sunday morning to go and make disciples. That's actually a burden that falls on each one of us, that we would actually be a people, a church, that would engage our lives in such a way that we would point people to Jesus through the way that we live and function just as human beings. The only way that a church has a redemptive presence in the city is if there's unity. And so that's what the world's waiting to see in the church. It's not us divide over trivial things, but for us to be a unified people. And so Paul's looking at these three groups of people. And in the text today, he sort of introduces a fourth group of people to us that he's referenced before, but he dives into this fourth, fourth group, the false teachers. And these are sort of the, the protagonists in this whole letter, right? The, 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 uh, these false teachers, um, the, the, the presence of these false teachers has sort of been woven through the whole book of 1 Timothy as we've read through it. And I think that as Paul addresses these false teachers here in the text, I think it's still for the purpose of unity. So that everybody in Jesus' church is capable of identifying the characteristics of a false teacher, 
We, we have to know what the things are that are dividing the church in order to figure out how it is we're going to be part of uniting it. And what's crazy is that in my 25 years of ministry, as I was thinking through this, I've never heard people be able to get on the same page with regards to what the heck a false teacher is and what it's not. Like, it seems like we're always divided over this issue. And, and that's confusing to me because we'll say things like, well, that person can't be a false teacher. They literally have 10,000 people following them or sitting in a room listening to what it is they say. Or their online presence is so amazing. There's so many people that love this person and will follow after they couldn't be a false teacher. Maybe I'm the one that's off. And yet, here's this text that we're going to read this morning that's giving Jesus' people an opportunity to be unified on what it is a false teacher actually looks like. And there's something so redemptive about this passage to me. Like, it sounds kind of dark to begin with. But I've heard so many people comment on how they've been hurt by the church. And I myself, like, I've experienced hurt within the church. But, but it seems like we're living in a day and age where so many of us are disillusioned by the church, like we've been harmed, whether it's elders or pastors, community leaders, deacons, whatever, there's something that's happened and so many people have left churches in the droves. My wife was just reading an article to me that uh, was in the um, New York Times, I think yesterday, that stated that in the last 20 years, there's been a 12% decline in the amount of people that are attending churches nationally uh, in the United States right now, in 20 years. The largest decline that our country's ever seen in history. 12%, like that's just, that's a ton of people when you think of the 300 some odd million that live in the United States. But my question is, um, like as we watch this decline, as we continue to hear people say, I've been hurt by the church, as we've got our own church hurts, it's not as though Jesus is sort of the one that's offensive and turning people away. It seems like it's the people within the church that are the, actually the offenders, the ones that are offending people and turning them away. But what do we do with those of us that are left, is what I kept thinking about. If the droves are leaving, what do we do with those of us that are left? And we sort of interact with everybody, I don't know if you feel like this, but because of all that we've seen and experienced in every documentary we watched and everything we've seen and how the church has failed, we sort of live our life within the church at an arm's length away, don't we? We don't really want to engage people too much. I don't want to be vulnerable like I was before because last time I went there, like I was hurt. And so we continue to live our life sort of like this. We don't want to get hurt again. And so the walls we build up to protect us are actually the walls that we end up, that end up isolating us and dividing us. And so many people come into church with this skeptical view. And like, like, you come in this morning, like, what's going on with this dude that's preaching? Like, he looks like that, or he said this, or whatever it is. We're just immediately skeptical on the things that we see and the things that we hear. And so we live life at an arm's length away. And some of you, again, you might be doing that with me this morning. But how do we know that there's authenticity? And how do we know that there's actually truth? How do we know that, that you're not going to cause damage in somebody's life, again, that they've, you know, can stock up to uh, another church hurt. And I think it's this text that actually allows us to break these walls down. Like the essence of Jesus's people is that there's a connection and an intimacy and a transparency amongst his people, but it has to be a safe place for this to happen. And so this passage allows 
us to identify what a false teacher is, or, or a godly teacher for that matter. Like, what's a godly teacher versus a false teacher? And, and this text has so much more to say in it. In fact, there's three things that at a first glance seem sort of disjointed, but in fact, there's kind of a sequence that exists, a perfect sequence. There's three things we're going to look at. One is the fruit of false teachers, which we'll see in verse 3 through 5. Two, we're going to look at the fruit of Jesus' people, and we'll see in verses 6 through 8. And then the last part we'll look at is a temptation that leads to ruin in verses 9 through 10. So 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, if you'd open up your Bibles, it'll be on the screen, but I love to hear those pages turn. So open them up and let's read. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction amongst people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So these three verses give us a lot about the fruit of these false teachers that he's talking about. Paul says this, that it's their attitude, it's their heart, and it's the effect that they have on others. The first thing you see is that Paul's addressing their attitude. Paul says that they're conceited, and he says that they're puffed up. How many times have we had combos with people, and, and they have such strong opinions about something, and, and what do we do as Americans the minute we're kind of confronted with somebody that has a really strong opinion? We sort of withdraw, and when there's conflict that arises, we just kind of back up. If somebody's too strong, we just kind of back up. We get insecure, we shut down, we start to become silent. And so these false teachers are walking around turning up the volume louder and louder. They're getting louder and louder, and it's causing others to just silence themselves, to back up, to to stop listening, to not want to enter into the conflict. But Paul says in their puffed upness or in their conceit, they understand nothing is what Paul says. And this means that somebody could have the title of pastor, and if they're speaking words that are different doctrine or don't align with Jesus Christ or accord with godliness, then they're puffed up and they actually understand nothing. And so there's this call to you and I to be way more discerning about those that we listen to, those that we read, those that we watch, that we can't just hit the like button a thousand times on a meme that we saw somebody post. We have to actually exercise discipline and understand like, man, if they posted one thing and you liked it a thousand times, but their doctrine is off, like there's something wrong with us. And at what point do we actually discipline ourselves enough to actually analyze what it is we're listening to, who we're listening to, who we're reading, what we're allowing to, allowing to build us up? And so they, these false teachers, they teach something different than the sound words of Jesus, and their tone is puffed up and it's, and it's conceited, is what Paul says. The second thing that you see is he addresses their heart. He says that they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. In the Greek here, this idea of unhealthy doesn't just mean sort of an imbalance. It actually, it actually means, this con- it has this connotation of being sickly, like actually having a problem. It's like a condition of the individual, like they have an illness. They're, they're unhealthy. It's their heart. There's something wrong. And Jesus says in Luke 6, 45, out of the overflow of the heart, he says the mouth speaks. And so if you ever want to know where somebody's heart is at, 
you sort of have to take in and listen to the sum total of their words. And so here in this passage, because there's this unhealthy heart, a heart that's rooted in sin, a heart that's engaged in sinful tendencies and completely given themselves over, the byproduct of that heart is a craving for controversy and quarrels. Like that's what their heart desires. Like it's a craving that they have. Anybody in this room have a sweet tooth? Uh, liars. You have a savory tooth, maybe? Yeah, okay, there you go. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. How many times do you finish dinner and you're stuffed? And you go like, I just need something sweet. And you're like, what? Like you just, there's something in you that desires something sweet. And so we, we just jump to like, I need it. Like it's not that I'm hungry or not that I want it. Like I actually just need something sweet. Like I'm sick, sick of the salty taste. There's a craving in us that desires something sweet. Now I know if I just finished a massive meal and I'm stuffed and I'm like, Heather, I need something sweet. Um, I don't want her to catch me going to the drawer to like grab a candy bar. Like I know it's, I know the thought, right? Like, you just ate a full meal. Why do you need that? Well, I don't need that. I have this craving deep down inside for something more. Even though I'm full, there's something more that I want. Have you ever had a convo with somebody where it maybe doesn't feel right? Like, as he references these people, that they have this agenda towards controversy and towards quarrels. Like, that's what they desire, that's what they crave, is just to go there, to get there. They, they just wanna get like, into controversy and quarrels with other people. And this is the craving that they have that he's talking about. Sometimes you get into combos with people like that and it just doesn't feel right to us, right? You feel like you're on trial, you can't put a finger on it, you don't know exactly what it is. But what if it's an unhealthy craving that the person, or maybe you, has? When I look at verse four, I think about how some people have strategies and tactics in conversations to win to their side. Like that's their goal. Have you ever been in those conversations where it's obvious somebody just wants to prove their point? And so there's this common argument called the straw man argument. And when I look at verse four, it reminds me of the straw man's argument. We're, we're familiar with this argument. This is the only way that our culture knows how to engage in any sort of dialogue these days. And it's what we see in the media, it's what we see in politics, right? It's how we engage in conversation with most people. But just so we're clear, in the church, we actually have to run far away from the strategy. So what are the hallmarks of this straw man argument? One is quoting an opponent's words out of context, which happens all the time in the media in our, in our American politics. Two, choosing quotations that mis misrepresent the, opponent, the opponent's intentions. Three, exaggerating an opponent's argument and then attacking the, exaggera the exaggerated version. And when you hear about like, the, the idea of an unhealthy craving for controversy, this is the straw man's tactic. And when you're being attacked, what do you, you and I tend to do when we feel like we're being attacked? We're silenced, we shut down. And so here's an example like in, a, in the context of a business meeting of what this could look like, right? One guy says, I think the majority of our budget should go to customer support because we're currently struggling in that area. So we need to allocate some of our budget towards customer support. The straw man's response to something like that would be, if we spend all of our money on customer support, like you're suggesting, we'll be bankrupt in a year. Well, what was it the person actually said to begin with? 
I think we should allocate more money towards customer support, not that we need to spend all of our money on it, but this, this exaggeration, which I feel like if you look around our culture today, these are the things we see happening. We see this happening even in the church. When we talk about false teachers, we see people preaching like this, where it's instilling a fear in people. It's not a truth that they're, that they're communicating. And so people get defensive and then it becomes like peace at all costs. I'll just shut up and I won't say anything because I don't want to deal with it. But I want to encourage us this morning because this cannot be how Jesus's church talks to one another. This actually cannot be how leadership talks to each other. And more so, it gives you and I confidence with a teacher to see for ourselves if they're actually in step with the words of Jesus. Like, what is their heart? Is it conceited? Is the person puffed up? Is the, tone, or, or, is the tone that of, like, them craving controversy and quarreling? And then the last thing that he talks about is the effect. The last thing is these terrible outcomes. He says envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. All that's crazy-making, right? You walk away more confused than ever. And so in the church, because we're in step with Jesus' teachings, the conversations that we have with one another actually should be conversations that are life-giving. They should be seasoned with grace. They should be seasoned with love. There should be encouragement. There should be a healthy understanding of Scripture. And to share with one another songs and hymns and spiritual songs, like those are the kind of conversations that we should be having with one another. We have to be different than the false teachers, set apart from those that are engaging in controversy and quarreling like the church cannot look like, look like that. And the fruit being born from their outcomes are these things, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. And so if that's the fruit of a false teacher, as Paul communicates, then I want to sort of juxtapose that with the fruit of God's people. If, if that's unhealthy, then what is it that's healthy? How is it that we should be responding? First Timothy 6, 6 through 8, he says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. It's actually really, really interesting, the, the Greek word there for that word clothing, it actually is indicative of more than just material goods that you put on your body. It's actually indicative of a shelter, it's a home. It can mean a place that you reside as well. And so when he's saying, we have food and clothing. He's not just meaning just to clothe your body. It's like you should be content with food, clothing, and a shelter over your head. And at first glance, what stands out to me is this call to godliness and contentment. I love how he says this, that it's a both and, godliness and contentment, which tells me that as Jesus's people, we can actually have godliness and still be discontent. So what is godliness, and how is it that we as the church, how do we get them both? Godliness and contentment. Well, godliness is a byproduct of our position, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is our place. And what the Bible teaches throughout Scripture is that Jesus' death on the cross was this atoning death, right? And Jesus' atoning death was for anybody who believes that Jesus' death on the cross paid their sin debt to God the Father. 
And so then what is imputed to you and I as a result of believing this, walking in this? It's Christ's righteousness that you and I are given. That's our place. That's the gift. There's nothing you can get to do to earn it. You, you, you can't. It's not based on your merit. It's not based on your morals. It's not based on public opinion. Like, there's nothing you can do for it. It says that the Father gives that to us through Jesus' atoning death on the cross. We receive his righteousness. That's godliness. And, and that we're seen through the eyes of God the Father is forgiven and, and that he sees his son's righteousness in you and I. For us believers, that should be a loud amen. We don't deserve that. But when God looks at us, what he sees is a righteous being as a result of Christ's work. It's amazing. This is a byproduct of our position. Our position in the Lord is that we are righteous beings as a result of what Jesus has done. We are godly people, not because of us, but because of what was actually imputed to us through Jesus' death. But then connected to that godly position that we have that remains through salvation is also this godly lifestyle, which Paul talks about all throughout his, his passages. It's actually what I think Paul's talking about here in 1 Timothy 4, 7, when Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, is what he said in chapter 4. So what's the call? That, that you and I would live these lives of daily obedience in step with what God is calling us to do. That's godly living. We, we saw this a couple weeks ago where Paul said in chapter 6, verse 1, that we would live, the li live lives that would not revile the name of God or his teachings. Like, there's something about the lives that we, that we live that actually matter. And so the call for you and I is to walk in a godly position. Like, we are righteous beings that get to walk in that righteousness, to come to God in our salvation, but then to live these godly lives, like our actions, our words, our thoughts, our intentions. These things actually do matter. They say something to the world and the way that we communicate and we think and the way that we act and the way we walk in obedience. As a follower of Jesus, these are all in step with what the hallmarks of Jesus' people are. But then there's more to that than this. There's this call for contentment to actually be added to godliness, which I think is so interesting. The call is for us to not just rest in our godly position, like just, it's not just about salvation, but to actually pair our godliness with contentment. This is a massive idea, and it's hard for us to even know what contentment is these days, I think, because we sort of justify this in so many different ways. But in our culture, we're always encouraged to do whatever makes us happy, right? That's sort of the, the, the mark of our culture. You be you. Like that, that trickles down into how we're supposed to spend our money. It trickles down into um, how we're supposed to have relationships with people that actually make us happy. And so if there's relationships that don't make us happy, then I don't have relationships with those kind of people. We only go places and travel to places because we want to feel happy. We only have conversations with people that will make us feel happy. And as a culture, we've sort of oriented our lives around the sole purpose of whatever it takes to make us happy. That's the life that I want to create. But in Scripture, we know that that is not the call for the believer. In Scripture, the call is for contentment. So what's the difference between contentment and, between ha and happiness? Well, happiness, we know, is an immediate thing. 
Happiness can be temporary, it's circumstantial, it's subjective of sorts. Contentment is a deeper work that God is doing in us. It's longer lasting. There's feelings of satisfaction and gratitude that exist in contentment. Contentment is not based on our circumstances. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison and they're in chains and the situation is really bad. And what do they do? The passage passage tells us that they start singing. Like, who in the world can do that in a situation where they find themselves imprisoned as a result of their faith, and they find themselves singing in prison? I feel like sometimes, even for me, like, I'm going to lose my salvation when the, uh, the yellow light moves to red too fast. You know what I mean? Like, I just can lose it, or I'm stuck in traffic, or I don't get a front row parking spot at the store that I'm at, or the place that I'm intending to go. And yet here are Paul and Silas in like a worst off position and they're singing. And there's contentment in their hearts and in their lives, even in the situations that they find themselves in. In Philippians 1, Paul's in this really bad place. He's imprisoned. He says, I counted all joy in the midst of that. Like how? You're in prison. How in the world could you count it all joy? But there's this contentment. A contentment that is not circumstantial. And we like to orient our circumstances and to sort of control things to create our own happiness. I do that in my life all the time. I know what, it, what it's going to take for me to be happy, so I will literally orient my life and create a sphere that drives happiness for me so I can have that. But the call to Jesus is to be content. And so how do we get that contentment? Some of us, we come to church this morning even, and we feel off. Like some of you walk in here and you feel like the spark just doesn't exist. Man, that guy seems way more on it than I do. Like I'm just not feeling it. So God must not be real. God must not be with me. The church is a joke. Like I need to invest in other forms of happiness in order to find that feeling again. But my question for you this morning is what if you're actually losing contentment? What if you're losing your ability to look around and realize that things kind of suck, but I'm good. I feel like that's a marker that will identify, set the church apart moving forward. Because we all know that this world doesn't get much better as we live on this earth. But what we do know is the peace and the contentment that Jesus offers us is unworldly, out of this worldly. It's something that can only come from him. So how is it that we get this contentment? And as simplistic as this sounds, um, and I'll unpack this a little bit, but it really is found in Jesus. And I know that sounds super simplistic, but we already have godliness given to us through Jesus' atoning death. We know that. Our salvation is secure. So it's not a sin issue. We're not talking about like a salvific issue. But here's what I think it is. And this is what I want to challenge you with this morning. I think it's your proximity to Jesus. I think that's what dictates our contentment. There's a story that you all know in John 12 of Mary and Martha, and Martha's stressing out, getting everything ready, working hard, and she's doing, doing, doing. And Mary's doing what? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. As though that's all that she needs. She doesn't need the dinner that her sister's cooking, but she just needs to sit at Jesus' feet. And so for Mary, proximity was the difference. That that was what set her apart. 
Psalm 16, 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. It says, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What if we were people that weren't just pursuing a salvific experience? Because I think growing up in the American church, it was all about salvations. So for you and I, we grew up in a church culture that told us it was all about raising our hands and being saved. It was not about how you walk that out after you do it. It was just about the act. And so even my years, 10 years traveling and preaching to skateboarders and trying to see people come to know Jesus, which was a real blessing, one of the regrets of that season is it's one thing to raise your hand to say you want to follow Jesus and be saved. It's another thing to begin to flesh that out and live that out, to actually put some feet to that. And we actually desired like a quality of life that allows us to encounter Jesus every single day. Anybody in this room ever had a summer camp experience? Like where you're just on a high for a summer camp? Not like a literal high, but like a Jesus high, you know? Some of you had that summer camp experience. <laughs> That's not the one I'm talking about. Uh, that one left you real quick, you know? The other one was a little more longer lasting. But what I think is interesting with these sort of summer camp experiences is you ask yourself, like, what happened? Why do people have these moments where they can, like, be on the, the, the top of this mountain and experience God in such radical ways? Well, the reality is that your proximity to God changed your countenance. There was a deliberate, a deliberate effort that you made to be with Jesus for a specific period of time, and it actually changed your countenance, and I think that's what happens. Maybe you felt like life is a grind. Maybe your relationship with Jesus, you would just say right now, is just kind of whatever. Maybe your marriage is whatever. Maybe your kids drive you nuts. Maybe you hate your job this morning. Maybe there's nothing that you think that's bringing any sort of satisfaction in your life. But my question to you this morning, if, what if it's your proximity to Jesus that's impacting all of that? What if it has nothing to do with the situation at hand? It has everything to do that you just have not sat at his feet. What are the rhythms that you've established in your life that allow you a closer proximity to Jesus? What if it wasn't about your prayers to God of what you need from him and constantly petitioning him to do things, answer this prayer, do that, do that, and God, if you do all those things, I'll be happy. But what if it was more about learning the discipline of spending time with him in his presence? Moments where you don't even have to say a thing, but you sit with him. Maybe you're reading his word. Maybe it's moments in nature where you just sit in peace. And in all discipline, learn to tune out the things in the world that are being thrown at you that want to cause division and pull you away in proximity to Jesus so that your heart becomes more and more disillusioned. And there's this fullness of joy in Jesus when we're with him that is not based on your circumstances or what you think you need, but is just based on your wonder of God. Like when was the last time you were just like, God, I'm literally so enthralled with you. God, you are so amazing. Like, God, I just, all I want to do is spend time with you. When was the last time you had that moment with Jesus? Is that enough? Is that what your heart is actually craving and what you've been trying to fill it with is a bunch of random stuff to produce happiness when God is just looking for you to sit at his feet? And I think sometimes we can lose true contentment if we fixate 
on false contentments, on counterfeit contentments. And money is one of those issues that we can lose contentment in Christ by submitting to the tyranny of the present in our life. We can lose contentment in Christ by turning inward and losing all concern for others. Contentment is something that we can step into and that you can step out of. Salvation is something that is given to you that you have eternally. Contentment seems to be this thing that you can come in and out of at seasons of your life that it actually is your choice whether or not you're gonna grasp onto it. And when Paul says, godliness and contentment, that the desire for you is to live godly, to be solid in your salvation, in your life, in your forgiveness of your sins with Jesus, but to also live a godly life and to also practice contentment. It's something that we have to intentionally practice. The third thing we see in this text, and I'll I'll end with this, is verses nine and 10. It's this temptation that leads to ruin. And he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. When I read this passage, what I see here is God's grace. That God's saying, son, daughter, You have this propensity in you to forget. But I actually want to talk to you in a way that's going to preserve your contentment and your godliness. And there's this temptation that leads to ruin, and and God wants you to experience him, and he wants you to avoid this pitfall. People will say that Christianity is this sort of antiquated belief system, right, that deprives people of their longings and their desires and their cravings. That Christianity is depleting people of the things that are actually going to make them happy. But God is actually calling us to something much deeper. And I think contentment is a portion of that. God is saying, son, daughter, when you're driven by temptation, you actually forget the love that God has for you. You abandon that love to go after the thing that you want. Son, daughter, you're prone to temptation when you forget that what God desires for you is actually very good. When we think of contentment, we think of it in a very negative way and we think to ourselves like, I just don't know if I can practice it because I don't want to give up the things I have to in in order to have it. And what God says is he actually knows that the contentment that he's going to offer to you, even in the midst of simplicity, he knows is good and that it will it'll bear fruit, that it'll do something in your heart, it'll produce life that all the things you can acquire in the world cannot do for you. Can we learn to be content? And we know that we're prone to temptation when we forget that what God desires for us is good. And I think what Paul's saying is money is one of these possible roots. It's not the root. I mean, we read this. He's not against people being wealthy or having wealth. But the scriptures say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think in verses 9 and 10 here, um, I, I think they're just pushing us towards godliness and contentment. Like, don't get distracted by the distractions, because if you do, it leads to ruin, and it leads to destruction. It leads to a restlessness, where where we get cynical towards the things of the Lord. And the call of God for us is to have this deep, satisfying, rich relationship with Him. And so I, I want you to know that the heart of God for humanity is good, and it's redemptive. And that God did this by sending Jesus to die on a cross to forgive us our sins. Jesus made a way where there was no way. God reminds us of the 
this time and time again, that there's grace. And so as we move into a time of communion here in a moment, my question for you is, where are you at with the Lord? As we talk about godliness and contentment, I realize there's people all over the map. Some of you don't understand what godliness is because you've never even started this relationship with Jesus before. Well, first and foremost, it's not the pursuit of contentment. First, it's the pursuit of Jesus. What follows that is we begin to live these lives like Christ in obedience, holy surrender to Jesus. And when we we begin to do this, contentment is a result of that, where we are not a people that are always reaching for the next thing. We are a people who can be content in any circumstance that is thrown our way. And so my question is, where are you at with the Lord? I don't want you to just go through the motions with this ritual as we partake in communion this morning. I want you to know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what we're remembering this morning. And so what's the condition of your heart? What's your proximity to the Lord this morning? If your proximity this morning is like, I'm good. Well, praise the Lord. That's amazing. But if it's not, I want to take this time as we enter into a time of communion for you to do some time with Jesus. To re-engage him maybe in a way that your heart hasn't engaged him in a while. Maybe you find yourself at a place in life right now where you're just disillusioned. And maybe there's stacks of church hurt and people hurt and all kinds of stuff in you, things that have been done to you that have just led you to a place of disillusionment. And this morning, I I believe that God wants to take that heart of disillusionment and replace it with a heart of contentment and satisfaction in him. I want us to recalibrate I want you in your mind and in your heart to review your priorities. Think about what the necessary changes are in your life in order to recalibrate, reorient your heart around the Lord. I want you to take this moment and I want you to confess the ways you've wandered and the ways that your heart is off and the things that you've allowed in that have just caused walls to be built up between you and the Lord. I want you to confess this morning, even if your heart is discontent, that you can confess that to him, that he sees you and knows you and desires to give you a heart that is content. I want you this morning, if you realize that you've forgotten, it's so easy for us to forget what it is that Jesus has done. And we come to moments like this where we take communion and why, why we take communion is to do this in remembrance of him. And so let's not skirt by this moment and just go through the actions so that we can get on with our day but let's take a moment and let's actually think about what it is that Jesus did for us. His body broken on that cross. His blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. His death and resurrection three days later. The power of the Almighty God by way of his spirit living within you and I. And as you contemplate that this morning, I want you to think about how does that actually change the life that you live? As you begin to remember those things, I'm doing a wedding this afternoon, and one of the things I always think about with weddings is that as I stand up there before a crowd and I say, um, we're here to celebrate this wedding. What an amazing occasion we're here to celebrate. And you look at the couple and you say, I'm gonna give you a message, and and it's gonna be 15 minutes long, and you're not gonna remember a thing of what I say this morning. You you don't care about anything I have to say. You, You have 
a one-track mind right now, you know? But there will be moments in that marriage where they have to look back on that day. And what they're reminded of on that day is the commitment that they made before others and before the Lord to honor one another and serve one another, to submit to one another in the same way that they would submit to Jesus. And for us, as we take communion, that's what we're doing. We're remembering the commitment that we made to Jesus, the commitment that changed our lives, hopefully forever. For those of you that don't know Jesus, maybe this morning's the morning that you make that commitment for the first time, and this initial act for you is the belief in his body broken and his blood shed, the forgiveness of your sins, salvation, eternal life spent with Jesus in heaven. Like all of these things are offered to you, grace and hope and peace and contentment. None of this can be found outside of Jesus. And so as we come to the table to take up communion this morning, there's something we have to remember. Who he is, what he did, and what that means for us as we exit this building this afternoon. God is for your contentment. God is for your godliness, and I want to remind you of that this morning. The world will know us by the fruit that our lives produce. And I'll tell you what, as I look around in this world, I see discontent after discontent after discontent. And I struggle with it. Where it's this constant action of realizing, like, I want more. How do I one up? How do I get up the ladder and have something bigger and better? And how do I do this? How do I do that? And what you realize is that it's a never ending pursuit that leads you to a place where you just never quite have peace or contentment in Him. That's something that sets us apart from the rest of the world. And as you come this morning to take the elements, to take the, the juice, to take the bread, may you remember that it's only by the act that Jesus did for us that you have the ability to step into that peace and that contentment that he can offer you, that you have the opportunity to be godly and righteous, not because of what you did, but because of what he did for you. Would you guys stand with me? Maybe bow your heads. I want you to take 10 seconds right now in silence. And I want you to contemplate the state of your heart. What's your proximity to God this morning? Jesus, I thank you for moments like this where your church comes together and I think that this act of taking communion with one another is one of the pillars of why the church gathers to remember your body broken and your blood shed. This is a hallmark. It's sort of the precipice of this life that we live for you that's built on this moment. And so Jesus, I pray for our hearts right now as I know there's so many thoughts in our heads so many wanderings in our hearts right now. We want to get on to the next thing. We want this. This sucks. That sucks. We just are racing. And yet in this moment, I just pray in this room, God, that it would be as though your spirit would come and there'd be this peace that would wash over our hearts and our minds. And as we take a deep breath and we recognize the peace that only you can give us, we also take a moment to recognize that that peace came in massive cost 
thank you, Jesus, for paying the ultimate price for us so that we could step into moments like this to be reminded that within a world that is chaotic, our hearts don't have to be. And so I pray for us, Jesus, that we could be a people that would find contentment and godliness paired together. I pray that we'd be a church that as we even live lives and make decisions on how we spend our money and our time and all the resources you've given us, that we filter it through what a content heart looks like in Jesus and what our needs are, what it is you have for us and what the needs of others are, that we're constantly thinking outside of ourselves, Jesus, and what we can do for others with what it is you've given us and how it is we can be set apart in this world that tells us to just acquire more and do more and have more and that those things are going to somehow stack up to give us this happiness that we've so desired and yet at the end of the day, God, all that stuff will be left in ruins. None of it will go with us to heaven. And so as we stand here just sort of barren before you this morning, God, I pray that you'd show us what matters. And I thank you for this moment and I pray you'd bless this time as we take communion we would realize this is a joyous occasion. This is an amazing opportunity that we've been given to see another day, to experience communion, to be reminded of your great sacrifice for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys want to come forward, um, the, the elements, I think there's some tables in the back, and then there's a few up front. You can go grab them from wherever's closest to you. There's two cups stacked on top of one another. The bottom cup has the wafer in it, and the top obviously has the juice. Grab it, go back to your seat, and then take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to do a work in you and remind you of the meaning of this moment, and then take communion at your discretion.